Well, it's a great joy once again to be with you. And as this is the last message, I would like once again to thank you for the invitation and thank you for your love. And uh, it has been a great experience for me and for my wife being with you and getting to know you. Uh, and we will be praying for you uh, so that God will continue to use you for his purposes. So as Mike said, we are coming to Corinth tonight, which is the last stop with uh, uh, Paul as he's completing his journey, the second missionary journey. And um, what we have been um, studying all along these days uh, was what it means to be missional, to be on a mission. Okay, So we will continue the same theme uh, as we're now exploring this narrative uh, from Acts 18. And we are going to see two main things. First of all, uh, what does it mean for us to be on a mission? We'll see some practical things, uh, how we can fulfill our mission. And then we will also see what is God's role, okay? The title is The Subversive Faithfulness of the Missional God is a Mouthful, but uh, hopefully uh, we will explain what we mean by that. So the main protagonist will be God at the end, okay? So that is what I want you to remember, uh, that uh, it's not about us and it's not our work, but eventually talking about missions, we're talking about uh, God and his faithfulness and his being a missional God. Now, we will start, as I said, with... Uh, uh, explore a little bit about our own part. What does it mean practically to uh, be missional people? And so we will ask the question, how? How are we going about to really become missional people? And I would like you to pay attention to uh, a couple of verses. First of all, verse 4, verse 4, where we read, uh, and he reasoned the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade Jews and, the, and Greeks. Now, uh, I would like to underline several words that will help us uh, make a point. And uh, here we have two words. The first is the word he reasoned, which uh, actually uh, this is again a favorite word that Luke is using many times to describe Paul's method and it's the word that you get the word dialogue, the elegeto in Greek, dialogue. So this is not uh, kind of a sermon up from the pulpit uh, proclaiming, but it's kind of interacting with people. So this is uh, what we have here. Paul is doing that and also he's trying to persuade. Okay, so epithon, he's trying to persuade. So then we go to verse 5. And there, again, we underline two important words that uh, Paul, uh, when, when Silas and Timothy came, we, we, real, we read that Paul was occupied with the word, okay? Another the translation is that he was fully devoted to the word, and we will explain what we mean by that. And uh, then there is another word, testifying to the Jews that the that the Christ was Jesus, okay? So he reasoned, he was persuading, he was occupied with the word, uh, testifying. And then in verse 9, when uh, Paul has this uh, vision uh, where uh, Jesus Christ most probably appears in this vision, he says to him, go on speaking and not be silent. So if we put all these words together, it's easy to realize that part of the way uh, that we fulfill our call to be missional is by proclamation, 
verbal communication. Okay? All these words have to do with what we say, with something that we proclaim. And actually, we read at the end of the Gospel of Luke. Uh, I mention Luke over and over again because Luke is not only the evangelist, the writer of the Gospel of Luke, but he's also the writer of the book of Acts. So there is this connection. So it's interesting to see how the Gospel of Luke ends. And there we read in chapter 24, verse uh, 47, that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations. Okay, so this is one side of... Uh, the way that we fulfill our mission. So there is something to say in many different ways. You may not be a skilled pastor or preacher that you can proclaim, or you may not be the greatest apologist that you can have the you know, best arguments to convince, but you can have a dialogue, okay? You can have a dialogue with someone. You can have a, an evangelistic conversation. So it's very interesting that you have all these different expressions to describe the same thing the verbal communication, which I think we can find something that fits our own personality. And so this is one aspect of our mission, to say something. However, there is another aspect. Now, if we come to uh, chapter 18, verse 8, we read, And many of the Corinthians, hearing Paul, believed and were baptized. Now, this is after... Uh, verse 7, I always say to my church that the best exegetical skill that you need to have is math, not complicated math, simply to know that, you know, 8 comes after 7, 7 comes after 6, which is very important to read the Bible in context. Okay, so in verse 7, we read that Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, came to faith. Okay, so this is the context. And then we read in verse 8 that many of the Corinthians hearing Paul, believed, and were baptized. So, if you see that translation, you will say, okay, this is yet one more occasion of uh, saying something, and through the proclamation of the gospel, faith comes. But, in the Greek text, uh, that is, in the original New Testament Greek text, uh, this is what we read, the, the, the word, Paul or the preaching of the Paul that you find some other English translation is totally missing. So what we read is that, and many of the Corinthians hearing believed and were baptized. So many translators assume that what they have heard was Paul's preaching. However, if we take into account the context, verse 7 says that Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue out of all the other people, came to faith. And many Corinthians hearing, hearing what? Hearing that Crispus came to faith, the, the ruler of the synagogue became a Christian, many people hearing that believed. You see, this is a, a different way to be missional, okay? And that is not now with your verbal proclamation, but is with a changed life, okay? Uh, people seeing or finding out or hearing about the change that the gospel brings about in the, in the life, in your life or in the life of somebody else, that is a message that makes a lot of people believe. And actually, we read the exact same thing, the, the same dynamic in the book of First Thessalonians. And keep in mind that Paul um, was in Thessalonica, then in Berea for a short time, and then he ended up 
through Athens in Corinth, so everything is really related here. But in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 and verses 7 and 9 to 9, we read, For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere, so that we need not say anything. Now, how come their faith went everywhere? Have they sent missionaries from Thessalonica? Have they sent, uh, you know, teams to preach the gospel? Okay, let's continue. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. The news of your conversion reads everywhere. And people hearing and seeing your change of hearts and your change of life came to faith. So, uh, how are we missional? In two ways. Both are very important. Because if you only have the one without the other, there's something lacking. If it's just words, 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 I mean, people are fed up with words. They want to see changed lives. But again, if there is only changed lives, I mean, many people in Greece, for example, when they get to know us, we are a minority, as I explained to you, 0.2. Uh, when they get to know us, you are good people. You know, you're very good people. So if at that point you don't explain that what you see in me, you know, this difference that you see in me is not because I'm a good guy, but it's because Jesus Christ changed my heart. You realize the credit comes to me. And this is not evangelism. This is not mission. So both elements need to be together in order to really have uh, a missional attitude and to really share the gospel. There is, however, another uh, aspect that is worth examining here. If we move on in verse this here. In verse 4, we read this. Uh, I mean, you remember the narrative, I hope, that Paul goes to Corinth. Uh, Priscilla and Aquila, they uh, take him in, and they have the same uh, uh, profession. So they are tent makers, so Paul is working with them. Okay, so this is the context. But we read that, uh, in verse 4, that he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath, you know, he's working in the tent-making show, but every Sabbath, he goes to the synagogue, and there, he is reasoning with the people, and he persuades Jews. We understand that, okay? This is what he does all along. That's basically his strategy. And, and we see that this is more intentional. On a Saturday, going to synagogue in order to do evangelism. This is, so to say, a project, an event. This is something which is intentional. This is organized. But also, we read this detail. And Greeks, where did he find the Greeks? In the synagogue? Of course not. Where Paul found the Greeks? I mean, not the Jews, but the pagans. In his everyday life. What you see there, sorry, I'm pointing there because this is what I see. What you see there is part of the ancient Corinth. These are little shops. Most probably Paul was working in one of those. Uh, these little shops in the Agora, in the public space, in the public place. So Paul, as he was doing his tent-making tent business, people would come and go. And in his everyday life, as he was 
doing his profession, he was sharing the gospel, having evangelistic conversations. And you see this dynamic here? Both of them are important. It's not either or, it's both and. You know, for some people, in some cases, you need to do the synagogue evangelism, meaning to organize and go that particular time in that particular place to do this particular mission. And that is great. But uh, there is this other aspect which is so important, that in your everyday life, in whatever is what you do in your everyday, the ordinary people doing you know, ordinary things. I mean, for Paul, it was being in his shop, doing tent making, and as he was doing that, uh, he was really being, again, an ambassador of Jesus Christ. He was doing it with gospel intentionality, okay? So, we see all these dynamics, because I hope they're very practical as we are um, answering the question, how? Now, we are moving on to the question, who? Who is doing the evangelism? Who is doing the evangelism? That will lead us to the second part, on, you know, to uh, the part of God. But who is doing the evangelism? The, the easy question is to say Paul. I mean, I don't know what is your picture of Paul, but uh, many people think that he's like the Superman. You know, he's the superhero that, you know, he just goes there and fears nothing and does all the work. But it's very interesting that if we pay attention and we read carefully this narrative, we see that Paul is surrounded with so many people, so many co-workers. So we read already about Aquila and Priscilla who take him in, provide hospitality, give him the means to survive, to support himself. Then we read about uh, Timothy and Silas who are coming, his co-workers. And then, remember that verse that says that after they came, he was fully devoted? There are two interpretations of what does that mean. One is that uh, because of his, their presence, he was really encouraged and excited, and he was you know, really devoted to the preaching. So that is, you know, a good explanation. Many times, you know, we need the support of other people to encourage us, to strengthen us, so that we can fulfill our mission. But most probably, it means that Timothy and Silas brought to him, as we read in Corinthians and Philippians, money that the churches in Macedonia collected to support him. So he didn't have to work as he was working so that he was fully devoted. So, not only Timothy and si Silas, but also the believers from Macedonia are into the picture. So, who is doing the ministry? Who is doing the evangelism? Aquila, Priscilla, Timothy, Silas, the believers in Macedonia. And then we read about Justus, who is providing hospitality and opens his house for Paul to stay and to do ministry. And later we read about Crispus. So who exactly is doing? So you see this aspect that many times we think that evangelism is a work of the evangelists. Missional means that you have to become the missionary. But you see that it's a collective project and all of us together we need to cooperate and work together so that we can fulfill our mission. But here is the important thing that we shouldn't miss here. Who is doing it? At the end of the day, we need to realize that the one who is in Corinth, who actually was in Corinth way before Paul arrived, it was God. 
It was God who orchestrated things that Priscilla and Aquila were there waiting for Paul. We'll talk about that later. It was God who said to Paul in the vision, I have people in this city, you know. I have been here already waiting for you. So the protagonist always in this narrative, but in every narrative of the Bible, the protagonist of the work of mission is always God. So what I would like us to do now, this is the most interesting part of the sermon, the second part, is what is God's role how God is present, how God is active in all this enterprise. And I would like us to see three things. Uh, and the key word uh, is the word subverts. So the subversive, okay? I like this word. The first thing is that God subverts our fixed categories. Our fixed categories. Many times we have little boxes and we arrange everything into these little boxes. We draw lines and, you know, everything is arranged there. But God, you cannot put God in a box. And God really subverbs our categories. Now, why we're saying that? It's very interesting that in this small incident, in these few verses, we have the mention of two Roman officers. Claudius, the emperor, and Gallio, the proconsul. Now, if I was to ask you, in what box would you put the Romans? I mean, in the box of the good people or the bad people? Or let me put it like this, if I was to ask you, in what box would you put the Romans? In the box of people who are really hindering the gospel or helping the gospel? People who are really playing an instrumental role for the spread of the gospel or those people who are really blocking the gospel. I think that what we would all choose and, and answer is that, of course, the Romans are the bad guys. Interestingly enough, both of them contribute in a significant way for the spread of the gospel in this particular passage. For, first of all, Claudius, in a very subversive way. How? Making a persecution. And because of the persecution we read, Aquila and Priscilla had to leave Rome and go to Corinth. And why did they go to Corinth? This is a very interesting question. Let's put ourselves in the shoes or in the sandals of Aquila and Priscilla. Imagine that happens to you. First of all, Aquila, actually, yes, Aquila, we read he comes from Pontus. Pontus is an area in the northern part of Turkey. So he moved from that area in Rome. So he was a migrant in Rome. So he set up his business, he had his family, he had his life, and then a crazy emperor, Claudius, decides to send away all the Jews. And he leaves and he goes to Corinth and he tries to set up his life right from the beginning. And I'm sure that he has spent many nights, he and his wife Priscilla, saying, why God? I mean, why, God, you allowed that? Why we're here in Corinth? I mean, we had our life in Rome. Why did that happen? Till the time that somebody knocks on their door. I don't know if their tent, they had door, but let's imagine that there was a door. And it's Paul. And all of a sudden, all of this makes sense. That's why we had to be here. And who was the instrumental? I mean, this is not a surprise because if we read the narratives of Jesus' birth again, we see the Romans in a strange way participating in the plans of God. So, 
Claudius plays a very significant, positive role fulfilling God's plans so that Paul will find Aquila and Priscilla, who, by the way, they were not simply those who offered hospitality to Paul, but as we will see, they moved along with Paul and they have been trusted partners for the rest of his ministry. And we read that they have risked their lives for the sake of the gospel and Paul really thinks so highly of them. So this is Claudius. But what about Gallio, the proconsul? Gallio plays a very important role in the book of Acts and particularly in this uh, incident. And not only here, but that has consequences for the rest of the story. A problem that Christians always face, it was the question whether there, is, there are a legal or an illegal religion. For the Roman law, the Jews were a legal religion, so they were allowed to practice their faith. So there was always the question, where do we put the, the Christians? Are they legal or illegal? And here, Gallio sets up a court and makes a ruling saying that Christianity is a legitimate religion. And we may not understand the significance of this, but it's huge because it sets a precedence. Because Gallio was a very important personality in the Romans. He was, very, he was really trained in the law. So it, it set a precedence that will really create the environment and the conditions so that Christianity can really uh, spread. So the first thing that we see here is that in a, in a strange and unexpected way, the Romans, who typically would put them in the box with the bad people, they're really contributing to the growth of the gospel. Let me also say this, Gallio uh, is very significant for one more reason. Uh, in, um, this is an inscription that was found and still is in Delphi, which is an archaeological site in Greece, and it mentions the name of Gallio, and this is the indication we have in order to be able to date Paul. Uh, so we know that Gallio was the proconsul in Corinth for two years from 49 to 51. So being able to date Gallio because of this inscription, we can really date Paul. So we can say, okay, Paul was in Corinth in the 50 or 51 AD so that out of that we can then make all this connection when he was in Ephesus, when he wrote. So he, he, he played a, a positive role without knowing it even in this uh, fashion. So the first thing is that God is the God who subverts our boxes, our categories. The second thing is that God is a God who really subverts our cynicism. cynicism. What, what do we mean about cynicism? How many times you said, this is it? I mean, this is the final verdict. I mean, let's say about someone. I mean, I have tried and tried and tried. You know, he is not going to come to faith. He is not or she is not going to change. So Paul said exactly that. He tried to witness to the Jews in the synagogue. And what we read here is that they rejected him. And Paul said, this is the end. This is the final verdict. There is no hope for them. And he even underlines that in four different ways. I mean, he's not simply saying it or implying it, but we read, I don't know if you've noticed that, that uh, he shook off his garments, then 
we read that he said, your blood is in your hand, in your heads. Then he said, I am innocent. And then he declared, from now on, I will work only with the nations, with the Gentiles. I mean, it couldn't be more clear. Paul thought, and he was sure, that this is the end of his Jewish ministry, okay? Shook off his clothes, your blood on your heads, I'm innocent, now I'm going to the Gentiles. And see what happens. Paul moves from the synagogue to the house next door so that he can either, even from, you know, with this to underline that, you know, I'm just leaving the synagogue. And who is the first one who comes to faith? Have you ever thought about that? Paul says, you know, there is no hope for the Jews. I'm not going to deal with them. I'm just going to go and turn to the Gentiles. And the first one who comes to faith after Paul says this verdict is who? The ruler of the synagogue. God is, has a lot of humor. <laughs> but I don't think that it's, it's, a, it's an issue of humor, but it's God comes and subverbs our cynicism. And you say, oh, you think there is no way? I'll show you there is a way. You think that this is the end? No, no, no. I'll show you it is not the end. So God comes and subverbs our categories. And how encouraging it is, especially as we pursue our mission. How many times all of us, we said in one or another occasion that there is no hope. There is no point of trying. You know, there is nothing that is going to happen. Let's have faith and courage. God is our God who subverbs our cynicism. And finally... Our God is the God who subverbs our narratives. Now, this is my favorite part. Uh, well, let me ask you this question. How many times must something be done to be convinced that it will always be done that way? How many times something has to happen in your life in one way to convince you that it will always happening, it, it will, will always happen the same way. Okay, now think with me the story. In less than two years, Paul experienced the same scenario at least seven times. What is this? He starts in Antioch of Pisidia. He goes in that town, he goes in the synagogue, he's preaching. There is some growth and some fruit then there is opposition of the Jews, persecution, and he has to flee. Then he goes to Iconium. Same story. He goes there. He goes to the synagogue. He's preaching. There is same relative success, but the Jews again get angry. There is persecution. He has to flee. Then, I know you will get tired, but I will make my point. Uh, <laughs> we'll do that seven times. Okay, then he goes to Lystra. He goes to the synagogue, he's preaching, there is a relative success, the Jews are really upset, they have a riot, and they stone him. There is some variation. They are stoning him, and they leave him because they believe that he's dead. Okay. Let's continue. He comes to Greece, he goes to Philippi. Same thing. He's preaching, there is no synagogue, he goes to the river, you remember, he's preaching, there is some success, some people come to faith, again, there is opposition he has to be in the prison. You remember the story in Philippi. Then he goes to Thessalonica. Same story. He goes to the synagogue. He's preaching to the Jews. There is some relative success. And 
After that, the Jews again, they react and they persecute him and he needs to flee during the night. You remember the story. And he goes to Berea. And in Berea, he goes to the synagogue and he's preaching the gospel. There is some success. And after that, again, the Jews uh, from the Salonica, they come and they cause the stir up opposition and he has to flee, leaving his co-workers behind, you remember, from the morning. And then he ends up in Athens. No, here there is no synagogue and no Jews, but uh, it's the Greeks now that uh, they mock him. They say, you know, I mean, Greeks were very polite, the Athenians. I mean, they didn't say to him, you know, what you say is stupid. They said to him, uh, it's like when you go for an interview for a job, they say, don't call us, we will call you back. You know, this is something like this that happens. So, you, you know, that's very interesting. We'll hear you perhaps another time. So he has to flee. And now he's in Corinth, seven times the same story, the same story. And actually, Paul uh, is at that very time that uh, he gets beaten. Okay, it's, uh, it's the time, you know, he went to Corinth, he started preaching in the synagogue, at first he had problems, but now, you know, there is some success, Crispus comes to faith, and more Jews come to faith, and he knows that this is the time I'm waiting, this is the time, that now I know the story, I'm sure, the Jews will get upset, they will persecute me, and once again, I have to flee. And God appears in a vision, subverting our narratives. And he says, Paul, I know what you think. You are packing up, <laughs> getting ready to leave. But let me tell you this. This is not going to happen. Nobody will harm you. You will stay there because I have people in this city. Isn't it beautiful? that God comes into our lives, into our narratives, that sometimes uh, we believe that they're fixed. And God says, you know, I can subvert them. Just trust me. And interestingly enough, God is not saying only that. Uh, there is a very interesting point there before we, we even, you know, we, we see more closely verse 9. Who is getting beaten? I mean, the truth is that after he has this vision, uh, the story seems that, you know, it develops the same way. Yes, indeed, the Jews get angry, they grab him, they take him to Gallio, and perhaps Paul is not sure whether the vision that he saw it was from the Lord, it was his imagination or whatever, he's, you know, okay, the same scenario. But Gallio, we said, he says, no, 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 he's innocent. You know, this is legitimate. This is not of our own business. And who is getting beaten at the end? Sosthenes, the new ruler of the synagogue. Isn't it interesting, the subversion of the story? So at the end of that story, it's not Paul who gets beaten, but it's the ruler of the synagogue who gets beaten. And Paul gets to stay one year and a half. It is the first time in his ministry that he leaves a town whenever he decides to leave. He packs up his stuff, he takes his suitcases, he says the goodbyes, and he says, okay, now for me it's time to leave. He's not fleeing from this country. So this is the end of that story. But it's very interesting that in that vision, God is not only saying to Paul, don't worry, nothing will harm you, no one will harm you, you will stay here. God says to Paul the most important thing. He says, I am with you. I am with you. And what does that mean? It means 
that I'm faithful, the subversive faithfulness. I am with you. It's a way of God asserting that I am faithful to my promises. But I think that most importantly, what God says to Paul is that, Paul, don't, don't, do not think that you are on your own on this mission. I am also here in Corinth. So, God teaches to Paul that he's a missional God. He's not like the general who sends his troops and he says, you know, you go there and fight and see what you'll do. God is with Paul in Corinth. And actually, as we already saw, God was in Corinth way before Paul ever arrived. He is the missional God. So, here is our final motivation why we need to be missional. Because our God is missional, because of the gospel, because this phrase, this expression, I am with you, is the summary of the gospel. I don't know if you ever noticed that the gospel of Matthew begins and ends with this proclamation. In chapter 1, the gospel of Matthew, we read about this baby who will be born and the name will be given Emmanuel, for God is with us. And in chapter 28, the Gospel of Matthew ends with this proclamation, uh, go and make disciples and I will be with you. The Gospel begins and as this is the summary of the Gospel, I am with you. So eventually, the Gospel is not something that we only have to proclaim. <laughs> the Gospel is primarily what we have to believe ourselves in order to become missional. And that, my sisters and brothers, is my prayer for us and for you. We face different challenges and different temptations. We live in very different contexts. But we have the same call, no matter what, to be ordinary people doing ordinary things, but with gospel intentionality. And if the Lord may call some of you to do some extraordinary things, because this is what this mission conference is also about going. If God is calling you to do some extraordinary things, trust God. Because he says, I am with you and that is all that matters. Amen.